0: Hello and welcome. My name is Leva Bonnevi and this is episode 30 from Clan of the Horses, a podcast about horses and horse people. Today's guest, James Serple, is Emeritus Professor of Animal Ethics and Welfare at the University of Pennsylvania. He has lectured in School of Veterinary Medicine on veterinary ethics, applied animal behavior and welfare, and human-animal interactions. And he has written several books focusing on the latter human-animal interactions. I first came across his work when he participated in a documentary called Dogs, Cats and Scapegoats. Short version being there is finally a dominance pack theory recovering program. It is called Science. Please embrace it. Okay, so uh, James, uh, thank you ever so much for joining me on my podcast.
1: Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
0: And yeah, I uh, I came across a video on YouTube where you had some very interesting points. And one of the things that you talked about in the video I saw was the theory of dominance and hierarchy and also kind of where it goes wrong. So uh, I was wondering, could we could we start there?
1: Oh, sure. so um, there's a lot of misunderstanding about Um, hierarchies and so-called dominance in animal societies. So animal societies do form hierarchies. Groups of animals do form hierarchies. There's no question about that. The real issue is how these hierarchies are maintained. And um, the kind of old-fashioned view is that these hierarchies were maintained from the top down. In other words, it was necessary for the individual at the top of the hierarchy, the, the so-called alpha, usually a male alpha, um, would impose uh, on the rest of the members of the group um, his, his um, authority, if you like, by constantly as, asserting his authority through acts of violence, essentially against other members of the group and that this would have then a knock-on effect down the hierarchy. So the alpha individual would be aggressive towards the beta individual, and the beta individual would be aggressive towards the the C individual, and so on down the chain. So you've got this sort of formation of a linear hierarchy based essentially on um, the exchange of uh, aggressive interactions. And uh, the more we have studied natural hierarchies in animals living in the wild, the less this appears to be the case. Uh, In other words, it appears that most hierarchies are based on age, seniority, and uh, be on a tendency of individuals lower down the hierarchy to defer to individuals higher up. So it seems to be much more a voluntary thing that those lower down choose, as it were, to defer to those higher up. And um, the reasons for that are complicated. Um, presumably, it's a recognition that those individuals at the top of the hierarchy have more information, more experience, uh, may be better in a role of uh, leadership in, in that sense. And so in that context, it makes sense for those individuals to, to defer, dif- to as it were. I think a lot of A lot of the misunderstanding as well comes from the fact that in, for example, in uh, wild canids like wolves, the group is usually an extended family. So it consists of parents and several generations of offspring. And uh, there it's very clearly the parents who are the leaders of the group and the offspring defer to their parents, which is a kind of much more natural kind of hierarchy, really, when you think about it. And it's very rarely necessary for the individuals at the, the top of the tree, so to speak, to actually enforce their authority on those lower down. You do see occasional instances where uh, say, one of the youngsters is being too assertive or getting in the way, and then you will see some aggression. But most of the time things are very peaceful. And what happens is that ju- the junior members of the hierarchy. Simply voluntarily, you know, don't assert themselves. And um, the unfortunate thing is that, uh, at least in the dog training world, which is the area I'm most familiar with, and this goes back to the 19th century, primarily in the training of military dogs, which is in itself kind of interesting, that this idea that the handler, the owner, had to assert themselves over the dog in order to prevent the dog sort of vying for leadership, in other words, trying to assert itself and become the dominant individual, uh, became very prevalent. And this this led to this very sort of militaristic, hierarchical view of the human-animal relationship where the human had to stay on top, and the only way to stay on top was to be constantly asserting authority, usually by means of punishment, by means of heavy-handed training methods of some some form or another. So a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of the misunderstanding in the dog world, at least, stems from studying wolves in captive conditions. And this is where you put a bunch of unrelated wolves together in, a, in an enclosure where they can't get away. And when you do that with wolves, they don't behave in a normal way. They don't behave the way they do in the wild. Because you're suddenly putting a bunch of adult wolves together who don't know each other, they're not kin, they're not family, and um, then you see a lot of aggression, or you may see a lot of aggression, a- and uh, it, it looks as though the whole resultant hierarchy has has come about through this, you know, exchange of aggression between the group members.
0: I think it's uh, very similar with horses,
1: I think it's probably very prevalent in many social species, and social, social, certainly horses are very social. Mm-hmm. You know, there are instances, for example, I mean, the horse is a, a harem animal, essentially, so males maintain harems of females in the wild. And um, groups of males will compete with each other. And uh, they have an interesting system in horses, they're a bit like elephants, let's say, Um, When they're ready to breed, the males go into a state of um, almost like what they call must in elephants. So their testosterone levels surge. Uh, They develop physical features that make them look very muscular and heavy. The sort of neck becomes very swollen. They show behavior, which is very kind of aggressive and assertive towards other males. And interestingly, if two males have a fight, if they have a battle, over a female or females, the loser very often shows this sort of a sudden drop in testosterone um, that goes right down, and that male will immediately go out of breeding condition, um, and so will no longer compete uh, with the, you know, the dominant male, so to speak, the male who's who's managed to triumph in that particular contest. But, you know, what goes around comes around. So the male that was beaten may then go away, isolate himself until he feels better and can come back into breeding condition. And he may then beat the one who previously beat him and so on. So it's a very it's a complicated system. But most of the time, horses are very amicable. They don't they don't they aren't constantly fighting with each other or constantly asserting dominance over each other. They don't do that.
0: I think, just find it very interesting with, with horse training because for sure a lot of trainers really emphasize that dominance is needed for a human's part, that, that the human need to kind of put the horse into place and, and uh, yeah, well, be rather violent I think, often.
1: I think a lot of that stems from fear. Um, so horses are very big, obviously. Um, very potentially dangerous to humans, if they choose to be, which fortunately they don't very often. But I think this issue of being frightened of an animal often leads to this notion that uh, you need to, (laughs) the the phrase in English is break its spirit, and that's very common in horse training or the the old-fashioned version of horse training was the notion that... uh, if you had a, a a wild or an untamed horse, you had to break it. In other words, you had to reduce it basically to a state of learned helplessness. And, and then it would be essentially safe to ride um, because you, you kind of knocked the stuffing out of it completely and it was unable to um, assert itself anymore or do anything on its own behalf because it would just be conditioned to expect punishment, whatever it did. And um, you see this again in uh, the training of military dogs uh, where again, you're dealing with animals that are potentially dangerous to some extent. They've been bred for what they call sharpness, which is a euphemism meaning that they bite or they have the potential to bite. And uh, they'll tend to be larger breeds like German Shepherds and Malinois and things like that. And again, in the militaristic kind of tradition, it's, It's this perception that you have to make sure from the get-go that you absolutely dominate that animal, so there's no risk of it turning on you um, and and attacking you. So I think deep down, fear is the biggest uh, motivator for a lot of this violence towards animals.
0: Can we uh, talk about um, how we could choose to do it differently and what kind of effect that would have? mean in, in your experience with animals? I mean, if I chose not to be hard and violent, what could grow out of that approach?
1: Well, I think we have to start with the assumption that animals aren't looking for conflict. They don't want conflict any more than we do. Animals will become aggressive if they become frightened and they feel like they can't escape from whatever it is or whoever it is that's scaring them. And um, so... The number one point is not to scare them, not to frighten them, not to push them into a situation where they feel cornered and they can't get away without resorting to defensive behavior, defensive aggression. And I think, you know, a lot of the, the so-called horse whisperers and dog whisperers are really simply exploiting aspect, n- normal aspects of the animal's behaviour to promote social interaction and engagement without any kind of aggression, without any kind of, uh, without triggering these fear responses. Which you know the horse is a prey species potentially, so they they're very easily frightened, and you really never want to push the horse to that point uh, where it's going to feel very scared, very frightened, and is going to retaliate. Because that then sets up the whole vicious cycle where you think, oh, that horse is just being spiteful, or that horse is just being, you know, deliberately obstructive or difficult. That then leads to the human retaliating against this misperception of the horse's motivation. And uh, uh, the same is very much true in dog training, or indeed training of any animal in my experience.
0: And there has been a lot of studies also about animals being spiteful, and what have they found when they're looking into this in a scientific way?
1: yeah they the by and large, all the results suggest that um animals don't have that capacity. In other words, they don't they're not particularly resentful. They don't remember past grievances, they don't um bear grudges, as we say. And they're not spiteful. I mean, there are. It gets more complicated when you get into some of the primates, for example. So there is some studies in primates which suggest that they do sometimes bear grudges against other individuals and will, you know, if the opportunity arises, they will retaliate. Uh, but animals such as horses and dogs, I very much doubt that they have that capacity. They don't. Um, they tend not to have very long memories in that sense.
0: And uh, another key word is respect, that the horse needs to respect me. What is your view on, on um, you know, having the approach that, that is a, that's a key part of the horse training, that you need to have respect from the animal?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it depends exactly what you mean by respect. If it means the horse has some internal sense of you being in a position of authority, I don't think that's true. If it means in your training you've laid down certain red lines, so to speak, that you would, you don't want the horse to cross, in other words, you don't want the horse to do something to you that's going to be painful or unpleasant or dangerous, then, yes, it's important that the animal respects those limits. Um, but, again, you should train that through rewards, not through punishments. You don't need to use punishments. And generally, I can't see that it's ever necessary, except possibly in an emergency. But, you know, even then, you know, if you're creative, you can find other ways of achieving the same goals. It's just people use punishment as a kind of shorthand um, and it's not really effective. All it tends to do is to create distrust. So the animal will no longer fully trust you um, because it won't understand the reason why you've suddenly done something violent or behaved aggressively towards it, nine times out of 10, it won't have a clue why you've done it. So that then makes you into a kind of unpredictable individual who can suddenly do something very nasty. And that that erodes trust um, between you and the the animal. And, And, you know, the best relationships between people and animals, just as the best relationships between people are based on mutual trust mutual understanding and if you lose that trust with an animal you can still work with it but it won't be as reliable it won't be as safe um, there are many reasons why you want to maintain kind of mutual a mutual trust
0: what we tend to see in the in the horse world I think is that we have those charismatic media figures or or you know, people with that showmanship, and they choose quick fixes over long-term results and, I would say, science. Yeah. Why do you think we're still doing this when it's so evident that, you know, uh, punishment and force is the wrong path?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> I don't think it's really any different from, you know, the question about w- why some people follow politicians who are manifestly, you know, Bad for society, or or something like that. It's because they're, you know, charismatic, and that, I don't know how else to put it. These people have a presence that resonates with some individuals, often many individuals, and um, they manage to convince us that their their method, their way of doing things, is the best way. And and you know the other unfortunate aspect is 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 that you know with dog, with animal training, dog training, horse training, punishment. In a sense, it works. In other words, you can you can achieve the goal you want in the short term at least very quickly because animals aren't stupid. They learn to avoid things that they don't like or avoid situations that they don't like or situations that are painful, but like i say it's not going to establish a good relationship between you and the animal long term that animal will never trust you that animal will always see you as a threat and if it feels threatened enough it may well retaliate and uh, then it's potentially very dangerous
0: we're now talking about the also the learned helplessness aspect Yeah, when the horse is so shut down that that it's not really operating normally. Uh, But people tend not to see it often. So they think it's all good.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, one could encourage people to realize is that when an animal is in that state, its physiological stress levels are through the roof. And that has a very negative long-term consequence for its health. So uh, animals that are perpetually stressed are not going to do well in terms of their general health, and uh, they're likely to die young. They're likely to be more susceptible to disease across the board, pretty much. So that's something to bear in mind if you if you're going to try and induce learned helplessness in your horse. The chances are you're also going to be inducing all kinds of health problems in the months in years ahead.
0: I think some of the some of the biggest challenges with animal training is that the stress that you're talking about that is through the roof is often invisible on the outside if you don't know what to look for.
1: Yeah well I mean they do give uh, subtle indicators of stress but again because they're a prey animal they're probably selected to conceal as much as possible the fact that they're stressed or in distress because that would be a trigger to a predator. Uh, that this individual might be a good individual to prey on. So, yeah, you have to be very familiar with the sort of body language and facial expressions of these animals to be able to detect when they're experiencing this kind of high level of stress, and sort of chronic stress.
0: Can we also talk about the value of having an animal who uh, is offering behaviors? Uh, Because when a horse is shut down, one of the things that tends to you know, be lost is, uh, it's curiosity, it's playfulness. But also, you kind of lose that quality, that everything, like you say, the human becomes something scary. And, um, and they get shut down, and they don't really offer the behaviors anymore. And a lot of people will say that then the animal is well behaved. But in real life, it's just not able to express itself in a normal way. Does that make sense?
1: Absolutely. So, you know, a characteristic of learned helplessness is what we call apathy. In other words, the animal just shuts down, as you say, doesn't respond to its environment in in a normal way. But yes, from the perspective of the rider of the horse or the user of the horse, it's a well-behaved horse because it doesn't do anything except what it's told to do. And so, you know, some people would consider that very desirable to have a horse that's just completely compliant. It doesn't resist, doesn't take any interest in, in what's going on around it because it's essentially shut down. But uh, think about that. People go into that kind of state. Slaves, for example, human slaves, people have described the same kind of thing, that kind of apathy. The loss of interest in everything, because basically any normal behavior is punished. So you just shut down. But this, you know, it seems to me this is not an appropriate relationship for anyone to have with an animal, and it's not necessary. Why? Why? Why do that to an animal? The only reason I can think would be again fear—that you're you're so afraid of the animal or what the animal might do to you that you want to keep it permanently in this this kind of state of apathy.
0: I did have in one of the first episodes I made, I talked about when I was starting riding school for the first time and I got two gifts from my parents, uh, a helmet and a whip, mm-hmm. which is when you come to think of it, very interesting because it all have to do, it has to do with safety. Yeah. Uh, you know, protect your, your head and, and protect yourself from the horse by using the whip. And they... Yeah. It was very natural for them. They, they they knew nothing about horses. They just went to the store and said, you know, we want to buy something for a little 10-year-old girl. And, and I didn't know any better, so I was delighted. I thought this is perfect and just what I need. But to me, it seems like horses is maybe in a very, you know, strange position compared to dogs. I mean, you wouldn't give a child a whip to use on the dog. But we do that on horses. So, I mean...
1: But until quite recently, we were giving uh, children uh, choke collars and leashes for dogs, so that they could control the animal. Um, I've seen I've seen people in my local pet store buying electric shock collars with their kids for the dog, and they're they're going to let their kids give these dogs electric shocks and. To me, this is criminal. This is animal abuse, basically. You shouldn't ever do that with a dog. So it's not that different. It's similar. But people are becoming more enlightened, that's for sure. So, you know, the last 20 years has seen this sort of very interesting shift from the idea of humans as the pack leader to being more about humans being a partner with the animal and the kind of training aids we use now are much more humane, things like, you know, chest harnesses and so on, which don't restrict the animal's movement and don't require pain in order to help the animal to, or to guide the animal to where you need it to go. But I still see, I see people walking their dogs, especially with little dogs. And if the dog shows any kind of misbehavior, they're just lifting it up by the, the leash. So they're hanging the dog by the neck. Essentially, to stop its its behavior, whatever its behavior is, uh, which is all perfectly natural behavior for the dog, but the owners don't like it, so you you know they they basically hang the dog, and you know I I can see this any day in my local park.
0: That's very rare over here, I would say.
1: Well, I'm glad to hear it.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm not saying it's not happening, but I I've never seen anybody do what you're describing there, ever.
1: No. I see it all the time. You see all it all the time. the time? Mm-hmm. Especially with small dogs.
0: Okay. So, yeah. So, maybe... I mean, over here, it's... Uh, shock collar is, I think, it is illegal. You're um, not to... um,
1: I, hope, I would hope so, yeah. Yeah.
0: You're not allowed to use it.
1: Yeah. Well, some, some companies here in the US have voluntarily agreed that they won't stock shock collars in their stores, but others still have them. You can just buy it over the counter. And uh, these things can give you a very na- nasty shock. I've tried one, and it's very unpleasant.
0: It must be horrible.
1: Yeah, it's not at all nice.
0: If, if it was true that you had to inflict fear and pain in an animal in order to control it, uh, I think it would be you know impossible to justify training or dealing with animals at all.
1: Well, I would tend to agree with you that ethically speaking, it's hard to justify at any level. Unfortunately, it still goes on to a great degree, especially in livestock animals. I guess it's done because it's quick. You know, it's expedient. It's, again, often prompted by fear. Livestock handlers often resort to physical violence to move their animals about or get their animals to go where they want them to go, that type of thing. And, you know, it's just, uh, it's going to take a very long time for people to, to change their methods. Uh, but I mean, there have been some very interesting studies that have looked at, you know, developed educational programs for livestock handlers that have, you know, assessed livestock handlers personality and related that to how they, they move the animals, how they behave towards the animals. I think there's a lot of research, interesting research to be done there. And I think all of it should, in the end, lead to us behaving towards animals in a more uh, humane and high welfare way.
0: Um, I'm wondering. I mean, how can we teach people to look beyond you know the quick fix and the, the methods of force and violence that they're they're used to? Because, like you say, the the trouble is that it somehow it also works. Yeah. So what we need to ask people is to let go of some, something they have tried before and it works and, and change over to something that kind of demands more of them. You need more knowledge and you need even a more precise timing probably. But, you know, how, how, to, how to kind of persuade people to, to make that shift?
1: Yeah. Well, I think it is, um, there is going to be some effort involved in getting people to switch. I don't doubt that. But I think the main thing is to emphasize that, yes, your old methods may work, but the new methods, at least in the long run, will work better and you'll have a better relationship with the animal. You'll get more out of your relationship with the animal and that will benefit you and it will benefit the animal, of course. So, you know, it's a win-win in that sense. And, And that's where we need to convince people. And um, it's clear that people are coming around to that point of view, but it just takes time. You know, there's a long legacy of the sort of punishment view of animal training going back, you know, hundreds of years that has to be kind of rewritten. That history has to be rewritten. And, you know, I find this quite interesting because I've got some, um, I've been looking at old books about uh, dogs, dog training, you know, 19th century books about dog training And um, one interesting fact that I found was that if you look at the early books on training dogs for hunting, for example, they totally rule out punishment. They say if you punish the dog, you'll ruin it. It won't be able to hunt properly. It's only if you reward the dog for doing what you want it to do that you will be successful with these dogs. It was with the transition of using dogs uh, for sort of militaristic purposes, police work, that's where it suddenly became violent and very hierarchical. But the early texts I read on training hunting dogs just says, no, no, no punishment, don't punish. If you punish a dog, you'll ruin it, it won't be any good. And I found that very enlightening. I thought, okay, so, you know, these people knew then that you got a better outcome if you used rewards rather than punishments. If you, you know, you... Uh, allowed the dog to express behavior, which essentially is a kind of natural behavior in dogs to hunt. And you then rewarded them when they did it the way you wanted them to do it. And um, I'm sure the people, for example, who do these sheepdog trials, they also know that punishing the dog's not going to help. What you do is you reward the dog. You've, you, the dog has a natural inclination to do this behavior, but the role of the the trainer, the handler is to help the dog to be successful at what it ordinary uh, what what it actually wants to do, not by punishing it when it does something wrong, but by rewarding it when it does it right and that that's really the key to success here I think, and I think you know most people, when given the choice between those two approaches, would prefer the second one would prefer to be in the position of yeah, okay, I know what I want to achieve with this animal. I know the animal has a natural inclination to to do this type of behavior, but it needs to be trained. So I'm gonna reward it when it does what I want it to do, but I'm not gonna punish it when it makes a mistake. It just doesn't make sense. And it's the same with like child rearing. You You don't want to punish children every time they make a mistake.
0: When you talked about hunting dogs and dogs uh, used to, you know, gather sheep, it just occurred to me that when you need to kind of let the animal go to do its job, then punishment is a lot harder because yep. the animal is going to be very far away from you. Yeah. Uh, while a lot of the modern training and also the way we use, you know, horses today and and dogs, both in the military and when we compete it's a very confined and controlled you know we're very close together mm-hmm. so maybe that is also part of it that yeah that it's easier than to to just stick to violence because you can yeah. you can smack it anytime because it's just there but once you have to kind of let it go then then you you can't really hit it anymore because it's going to be you know far away so it's maybe it also has to do with what we train the animals for in these days
1: yeah Yeah. I think that's part of it. Yeah. And also, again, the the fear component, the fact that you're there very close to the animal all the time in potentially volatile situations, I think raises the fear level for the handler. A lot of these military handlers are also very macho. They never want to appear as though they're intimidated by anything. And um, I think that's, again part of where the aggression comes from this desire to be to demonstrate that uh, you know I'm not afraid of this dog I'm not afraid of this horse whatever
0: I think like you said a lot of ha- uh, a lot a lot has happened during the I think the last 20 years mm. I can see it in the forums where people you know discuss ways to treat animals and train horses uh, 10 15 years ago when you had a horse that kind of bolted and and just ran they would say, well, get a sharper bit. But now they tend to ask, why does he run? Mm. And kind of look at where does the behavior start instead of trying Mm -hmm. to correct the symptoms. So I think it is really a huge step in the right direction. But at least in Norway, I I see a lot of trainers who are out there today and maybe also several of the more kind of popular trainers and Mm -hmm. they use these methods still. Yeah. And haven't really made that shift for real when they kind of say, well, you know, I want to do it differently. I want to build trust and and I want to build a relationship that's going to last and and a healthy, you know, healthy yeah. animal for years. So I'm just going to fix this. I mean, it's the, the instant thing. I think it's the, maybe it's just, the, you know, the way the human brain works. Instant gratification.
1: Yeah, we always want a quick fix, that's yeah. for
0: sure. So but james this is this has been just lovely to hear your perspective on it, and it's also very nice to talk to somebody who's really educated within this field because a lot of the showmanship players out there they they haven't really read the books or looked into right. the science they're just you know putting on the show and, and making money yeah uh, I have to say i'm I'm kind of reaching a point where i i'm I getting really pissed off. That it's still possible to make money training animals this way. I think uh-huh. it's it's become very difficult for, for dogs in Norway. You don't train dogs this way anymore. But with horses, I think, yeah, we are a bit behind the dog training. Yeah. Positive reinforcement is a lot more used with dogs than with horses still. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think I would agree with you. Mm. Um, but there are, you know, uh, horsemen currently working using very, very simple training techniques that exploit the natural behavior of the horse. There's a chap, a guy at um, Michigan State University, he used to be there, I don't know if he's still there, but um, called Nielsen, who, you know, I've watched him in action with uh, young horses, sort of uh, yearling horses, and he's and very interesting. He puts them in one of these sort of round rings, these circular rings, and, he walks towards them, and, and at the point when the horse starts to, like, avoid him, he then walks away from the horse at a, at a sort of angle, a cute angle. And he does this a few times, and it's quite fascinating. That about the third time he walks away, the horse actually follows him and goes after him, and he then just stands in the middle of the arena, and often these horses will come up and actually start to sniff him and then he, he'll he turn around and the horse will go away. But then he'll go through these things over and over again. And eventually, you know, within half an hour, he's got that horse following him around the arena. He's petting the horse. He's putting a blanket over the horse's back. He's doing all this stuff and the horse is like totally okay with it. And these are horses that have never been ridden by anybody. These are totally na- naive horses, and it's fascinating to watch it. And all he's doing is he he like kind of, he understands horses and he understands what scares them and what kind of triggers their curiosity. And um, he exploits this natural behavior. And actually, <laughs> within about 30 minutes, he's got a saddle on that horse. It's extraordinary. I think that's really the way forward.
0: I agree. Do you have anything you would like to add, uh, James, before I ask you my signature question? No. No? You're good? (laughs) Yeah. So, um, James, I have a last question for you, my signature question. Uh, What have you learned about horses or animals uh, during your career that you think it is important that everybody who deals with horses or animals should know?
1: Well my training is as an um, ethologist so animal behavior is my training and um, I've worked with dogs I've worked with cats I've worked with birds a bunch of different species in my life I've never worked with horses as such but my general take home would be you need to learn the language <laughs> it'd be the same if I was you know if you, if you want to go and live in a foreign country you have to learn the language you you know it's a, a necessary part of existence and if you want to work with animals and live with animals, you need to learn the language. You need to become familiar with the signs they're giving. They don't necessarily give the same signs that humans give in similar circumstances. So you need to be aware of that. They have different ways of saying what they want. And they have different ways of saying what they don't like. Um, but you need to learn what that's sort all of what they what they're saying, and, and be aware of it and respond to it appropriately. As you would with dealing with a foreigner. So it's a, I think that's pretty my take home message. There's plenty of literature out there that can help you on your way and be observant. You know, keep your eyes open, study the animal, see what it's doing, uh, learn to detect these sometimes very subtle cues and signals that the animal's giving uh, that indicate what's going on inside its head. Because unfortunately, animals don't have you know, a verbal language. They can't tell us how they feel or what they want, except by means of non non nonverbal signals. So that's really the key, in my view. You know, you want to keep these animals, you want to work with these animals, you want to ride these animals, have fun with these animals, learn to speak their language.
0: Thank you ever so much for your time, James. I really appreciated this talk.
1: You're welcome. Nice talking to you.
0: You've just heard episode 30 from Clan of the Horses a podcast about horses and horse people. And I sincerely hope that this episode will encourage you to look beyond the showmanship and examine the actual horsemanship presented to you by trainers you consider. It is unfortunately still way too easy to make money on old and rusty horsemanship. So please do your horse a favor and educate yourself. That was all for today. I want to thank my composer, Fredrik Blom, my designer of visual profile, overhauls. My guest, James Serple, and last but not least, I want to thank you, dear listener, for your patience. May the horse be forever with you.